From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of Sandberg Media here in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we air part two of our interview with scholar and author S. Brent Plate. We discuss his new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. Later on the broadcast, Natasha Alford takes us on a journey back in time to Memphis, the Lorraine Motel, and the life and death of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is S. Brent Plate, who teaches religious studies at Hamilton College in upstate New York. Professor Plate's teachings and writings explore relations between sensual life and spiritual life. He's authored and edited 11 books and writes regularly for the Huffington Post, Religion Dispatches, and other sites. He is co-founder and managing editor of Material Religion, the Journal of Objects, Art, and Belief, and is co-founder and president of Script, which is short for the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts. He's on the board of the Interfaith Coalition of Greater Utica, New York, and his most recent book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. S. Brent Plate, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. It's great to, great to be here on the radio with you today. Well, one of the things that really struck me while reading the book was this chapter that you wrote on incense, but you, you talk in that chapter about the time that it takes to burn something, and you use this wonderful image from Sherlock Holmes uh, talking about a three-pipe problem. And that got me thinking about the way in which we oftentimes neglect time in modern society. We want things to be uh, immediate in terms of, of their, their availability to us. But what you raised in this chapter was the notion that things take time, and certain activities like the burning of incense or the smoking of a pipe draws us back into the flow of time. And I, I wonder if you'd be willing to sort of speak a little bit about the impact of the flow of time on religious practice and why we maybe have, have gotten away from that oftentimes in our, in our current uh, society. I, I think uh, it's definitely, definitely correct. Certainly it's something of our contemporary society where we're Everything's fast and, and, and fast-paced and instantaneous uh, communications with the Internet. And so what, what I've kind of tried to do, I wanted to, I've done a lot of work in media with, with film and television and things, but I wanted to do kind of a, a media unplugged. Um, and so these, these, these stones and incense and crosses, these are, these are media. They're, they're social media, and people use them in social ways, and they've been that way for, you know, for thousands of years um, so hopefully it's a, it's a chance to slow down a little bit. Well, when I hear you talk about slowing down, when I hear you mention this sort of uh, disengagement from certain mediated activities, the thing that comes to mind is not necessarily a physical or a sensual thing, but a liturgical thing, and, and that's the, the Christian concept and the Jewish concept of, of Sabbath. Uh, we could also find you know something uh, similar to that in maybe Ramadan in the Muslim tradition, and I'm, I'm wondering, when we talk about physical objects, 
and we talk about physical objects as part of our experience of religion and religious practice, we're also, we must be talking about liturgy. We must be talking about the way in which time is structured and physical space is structured. And so as, as, you're, as you're working on these things, not just in your, in your recent book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, but in, in your many lectures but, and also in your journal work with material religion, when we, when we think about these objects, these, these isolated things, paint them for us in, a, in that larger landscape. How do objects relate to time? How do they relate to space? How do they draw us back into these, these, bigger, sort of, uh, these bigger sort of activities? Yeah, I think there's a yeah a number of, number of ways that that works, and, and sometimes they're sometimes I think the objects are are, are uh, mediums. Um, so a, a stone that we found on a beach, and we've you know I've got sitting on my desk here right now, and I can look at that and kind of be trans you know space collapses and, uh, and time collapses, and I'm transported back to the time when I was hiking and I, I found that stone and think about who I was with. And um, so it, it, these objects are sort of, uh, you know, much like the Internet, you know, with a couple clicks, uh, it takes you, you know, sends you around the world to some link around the world, and uh, you're sitting there looking at it. Um, I think stones do the same kind of thing. You know, with one, one glance at that stone, if we've got this meaning connected with it, it, it takes us around the world and across time in a very, very quick um, uh, kind of way, which then, of course, we can sit and and think about for a while and sort of pause and uh, reflect on a bit. Um, but I think they're, they're sort of instrumental, these, these objects in general, for, for liturgy and for ritual uh, in general to, to divide up time and space in very particular kinds of ways that uh, allow us to make, make sense of time and space, right? It becomes, it becomes graspable, um, Remember this experience when I it was in Fort Worth, Texas, and the modern museum of Fort Worth, Texas, just a, a fantastic uh, space designed uh, by the arch- Japanese architect Tadao Andel, and um, he um, just this grand entrance where you walk through these glass doors, and there's this huge uh, roof on it, and just this this massive space inside. And my I'd take my students there, and if they'd never been there, they'd go inside and look up and go, you know, just be amazed and say, wow, this is incredible. And they were, you know, they were impressed by the space or something about the sheer volume of it. Um, and so we, we sat and talked about it for a while. And of course, they, when they got out of their cars in the parking lot and looked up at the sky, they didn't say, oh, wow, look at how big the sky is. You know, it's, it's that, it, in other words, space needs to be bounded for us to sort of get it, you know, in some ways. We, we, it's got to have some sort of limits to us for us to be able to grasp it. And then the same thing with time. It's just, you know, infinity is, you know, an impossible sort of concept. We've, we've got to be able to put it in small ways in order to, to grasp it. And um, so we, we divide, divide up history and uh, divide up time and space in various ways. And so I think these, these objects, both the sort of built environments, but then the objects that we use within them, they help us to um, to grasp these, you know, time and space, these very abstract ideas, but, but we can only grasp them through um, the, the ways they're, they're cut up, they're chopped up and sort of presented to us uh, through, you know, various cultural productions. So I think objects are, are a key kind of way that allow us access to, to time and space. They, um, 
maybe transport us across time and space, or they, or they make us more firmly in the here and now. So one stone may be for memory, but another may be, um, you know, in a Japanese um, uh, Buddhist uh, Zen garden, a Karasansui garden, uh, or the, the dry rock gardens. And the idea is to, to be very much in the present, in the here and now, um, by, you know, using these rocks become sort of meditation devices. Uh, within that, so I think um, I, I think that's you know various ways or the the, the three pipe problem of, of Sherlock Holmes you know knowing that incense takes some time or, or in his case the pipe tobacco takes some time to burn and so marking time in very uh, different kinds of ways um, and you know we can we can think about a history of um, marking time too I'm really interested in calendars and how time gets marked and of course back in, in the old days it would be the about you know in a, a small uh, village where I live, you know, 200 years ago, you, everybody marked time by the the church bells. You know, there's one sort of central church, and you knew what time it was because of the church bells, and that was sort of this collective thing. And it was it was it was hearing you audially, you would know what time it was. And of course, the invention of you know sort of inventions of clocks and smaller and smaller clocks and watches became very personalized, but also visual. Um, and uh, so different, different traditions have different senses of how we keep time and, and different senses are engaged uh, in that way. Because the call of the, uh, the muezzin and the minarets for the call to prayer is a way of marking time, and it's a very um, oral way of marking time. And that's a different thing than from, uh, say, a, uh, you know, a, a clock tower or something like that. So modernization sort of moves moves time into a visual category rather than an audio category, which I think is kind of an interesting shift, um, how we do that. So I think, um, you know, really back to religious traditions, they certainly get us um, into, into a variety of senses for how we, how we change and chop up time and space in differing ways. If you're just joining us, our guest is S. Brent Plate, the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and the author of the new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. Here where I work in, in downtown Chicago, I work on a street called LaSalle Street. And at the south end of LaSalle Street, there's a plaque. And as my friends at uh, the radio show 99% Invisible say, always read the plaque. So this this plaque is dedicated to the construction of railroad time, which happened in the building at the south side of LaSalle Street at a convention. And railroad time was the, the eruption of, of standardized time in the United States and maybe in the world. Before that, everything had been, just as you said, sort of locally tracked time. But once you have, once you have an object, a train, that has to move from place to place on a certain schedule, it becomes important to have that schedule regularized. And I'm thinking about just the ways in which, just what you were saying, all the different ways that we measure time. But this notion of, of time that, you know, in, in whether we're talking about Chicago or Atlanta or Beijing or Berlin, we've got a sense of what time it must be in those places by knowing what time it is where we are. All of that is such a recent invention of our culture. And before that, we had all these other local ways of measuring time. You mentioned the, the, the prayer cries from the minaret, or, or we mentioned the, the movement of the sun through the, through the heavens. All of these things are, are constructed 
ways of measuring time. And then we create this sort of universal structure for measuring time. And then somebody like me grows up and believes that time has always been measured this way. So in what ways might we say that we have a, a sort of nearsightedness about these sorts of objects and constructions? What, in what ways do, do objects free us or push us to think beyond the sort of limitations that we've inherited in our culture? Mm, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good, good, good question. I, and I, I, I guess I do believe there, there is the possibility, you know, for, for objects to, to, to help us, you know, and, and, and part, of the, part of what I've been trying to sort of think about and, and really being propelled to think about it, it wasn't sort of my first thought, but um, I mean, when I, when I first started looking at this uh, research, I was thinking, oh, it's the human body that then goes out and engages these things in the world. But as I sort of got into it, I realized that these things were engaging the human body, that it sort of went the other way around, and that, you know, we sort of get stopped in our tracks from time to time by certain images and smells and, and sounds and touches. And, you know, these, these objects themselves have a power to them. Um, so I do, I do think they have this you know, potential, sort of a renewed kind of paying attention. It, it, it requires us to pay a different kind of attention to them. Um, but I, I do think they have this uh, opportunity to, to link us back again to, that, to, to nature itself, to think about how nature operates and, um, you know, to think about stones and, and their sort of the sense of permanence, like the stone has been here for a very long time, and yet it's actually, of course, quite different than it was. Uh, it, it's changing over time. Um, the the uh, uh, French poet uh, Ponge um, wrote this poem about the pebble uh, back in the I think it was in the 1920s, and he sort of talks about how you know these rocks were originally these, these great parts of Earth's crust, and they sort of broke up into smaller and smaller pieces, and they become boulders and sort of stones and then pebbles, and eventually they turn into sand, and just this long-term sort of meditation on the, the, the changes of of a rock over time, these seemingly solid substances nonetheless change. Um, so, you know, there's some sense that, you know, contemplation of these, of these stones and thinking about longevity sort of puts us back in touch with, with time, puts us back in touch with the, it, time in a long sense of time, right, in sense of sort of not just a human scale, but on a more geological scale, which is a much different thing. Um, so hopefully, you know, uh, the objects can, can get us outside of ourselves, too, right? Our, our kind of our, our myopic worlds where I, I check my watch or my phone to sort of see what time it is and when am I on to the next thing. And, you know, we, so many of us live our, live our lives with these uh, little calendars. And it's like, oh, okay, it's 2 o'clock, I need to be here. 3 o'clock, I need to be here. And uh, these little uh, electronic devices telling us how to uh, go about it. Um, but I, you know, again, I think thinking back to the, 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 the traditions and, um, you know, I've become a real big fan of the, of church bells and the calls to prayer, um, you know, just not just because they're beautiful, uh, but because, you know, they, they, they link us with something just, it's a marking of time, not, not thinking of them as beautiful, um, beautiful sounds, but of, of, uh, of really profound linking to a sense of time and time passing. Um, again, it's sort of, it's nice to live in the small village where I live and the, the Presbyterian church in town I can hear, and there's a Catholic church a little bit further on that has, that has uh, bells, especially for Saturday masses. Um, but I, I hear the bells at certain times of the day, and I, I just I 
kind of, I really kind of began to stop and think about it, not, not because it's some pious uh, kind of thing, but just think more generally about the sense of time and passing. And, okay, what time? What is it now? It's the afternoon, and it gives me a, a different take on the day, I think, to listen to the bells. Um, and so I think these, again, I think these objects sort of might, might put us in a different frame of mind for, for time and space to, to re, rediscover the senses, rediscover how we smell um, and how we, how we taste and how we touch and, and put us back into a, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a proponent of, you know, living, living more mindful lives. I certainly try to encourage my children to, to slow down and just uh, enjoy their food and enjoy small um, simple things that um, I know they get bored bored easily and want to move on to the next thing, but I'm um, trying to encourage a sense of mindfulness. And it's really mindfulness really is 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 sensibleness. You know, it's it's a, to be mindful means we have to come to our senses. We have to we have to really smell and taste and touch and hear, um, and and do it with a certain kind of conscious conscious attitude uh, towards these things. And I, I you know again I do I, I guess I. Fine to say, I, I, I do believe that you know we th- these are antidotes to some of our difficulties in in contemporary culture, some of our fast-paced life, some of our mindless uh, runnings around uh, that I you know engaged with all the time and just trying to get to the next thing. Um, I think there is a way of uh, reinvesting our bodies with a with a sensual. Um, sensual consciousness uh, that connects us with the world around us and, and ultimately with other people around us as well as we, as we see them and, and, and touch and, and smell uh, other people who are close to us. Um, I think it, it, it resituates, I think, a lot of our relationships with, uh, with the world. You've been talking about the your fascination with the flow of time, and that strikes me with uh, strikes me about something that you talked about in your book, and that is we have this notion of the external senses, so uh, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, feeling, but we also have internal senses. We have the sense that says I'm hungry now. We have the sense that says I'm tired now. We have the sense that says I'm excited now. I'm fearful now, and it it strikes me that we we have these external rhythms that clocks and and bells from churches and prayer cries from minarets impose on us from the outside but we also have these uh these rhythms that flow from the inside and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the sort of interaction between the external and the internal senses of time flow or the external and the, and the internal senses that you talk about in the book i think the um I think there are, there are connecting, again, sort of connecting points. You know, we, we talked earlier about the the personal and the kind of social. You know, how how individuals pick up stones and then how you know they get institutionalized in sort of large scale uh, through different authority structures. And I think something uh, something similar happens um, with the the internal and the the external. And, um, and of course, there there's a I think a, a flow back and forth um, between the between these two things, and uh, it, it, we, we build in a sense of if we listen to the bells, if we you know, smell these things, it puts us in a frame of mind and a frame of body to sort of be receptive to, to certain things. So it, it changes, and you know, one of the sort of arguments, uh, the deeper arguments I'm trying to make is that this is how religions have operated: is by you know, literally they train our senses, you know, these external cues that 
shift and, and alter uh, the internal structures of our bodies. Um, you know, we're not, we're not quite as uh, in control as, as we kind of uh, modernists uh, think we are, <laughs> individuals who kind of control the world and, you know, we create our own sense of reality. Um, we're, we're much more shaped by these, these external things. And so they, they put us in a, in a frame uh, to be, you know, oftentimes receptive, you know, to be, to the, the smells prepare us for meditation or they prepare us for prayer um, or the, the, the images prepare us for uh, you know, certain acts of, of piety along the way. And I think the, um, um, so I think there, there, again, there's a back and forth that's going, a, an ebbing and flowing between these things and, and ourselves. And so our, our internal clocks are, get regulated um, by these things. We become, you know, it's, it's the proverbial Pavlov's dogs. Uh, you hear the, hear the sound of the bell and, and begin to salivate. And uh, religious traditions do that. And, and, and it's, you know, on one hand, you can, we can be cynical and say, well, that's manipulative. And uh, on the other hand, we can, you know, realize it's, that's the way life is. <laughs> it's all manipulative. As a parent, I'm manipulating my children. As, uh, you know, any, everywhere you go in society, we're being uh, manipulated. Certainly, our late capitalism of uh, you know advertisements is, is all about that and, and has run with that in many great ways um, and not so great ways. But uh, so we're, we're we're kind of trained externally to, uh, to to respond. We we salivate at the the sound of the bell, or you know maybe in more religious terms, we uh, you know begin to slow down and prepare ourselves for uh, for worship at the sound of the bell. Um, Similar, similar kind of thing. So we we are like Pavlov's dogs in that sense. Um, and then there's you know we something about us humans. You know we have this ability to kind of um, uh, I don't know project some sort of will and consciousness on uh, on reality and sort of shift things around and maybe uh, change the change the structures, change our internal structures uh, around in, inside of our bodies. Um, and uh, and that's a you know good thing and an important thing to to be able to do to be able to be flexible and adaptable uh, to that. But the the sense of of trying you know trying to connect again I you know, sort of started the book by with the, the sense of the half you know that we're incomplete creatures ultimately we're we're half objects and we're trying to complete ourselves we're trying to connect with the outside world and uh, become whole again. So the, the half is the, this kind of in, incomplete body. We just, we're, no man is an island. Uh, we, we need other people. We need the, the world around us. And um, so the sights and smells and the bells and smells and all that is uh, ways to connect us with uh, a, larger, a larger world and make us feel not as if we're missing something, as if we're one half, but that we're actually whole, that we're actually one. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and is a frequent lecturer at conferences across the country on the subject of the physical and material artifacts of religious practices. Plate is also currently president of Script, the Society for the Comparative Research of Iconic and Performative Texts. His new book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, bringing the spiritual to its senses. You can find out more about Brent Plate's work and his new book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. 
Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and is a frequent lecturer at conferences across the country on the subject of the physical and material artifacts of religious practices. Plate is also currently the president of Script, the Society for the Comparative Research of Iconic and Performative Texts. His new book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. You can find out more about Brent Plate's work and his new book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Well, all through this conversation, we've been talking about the varieties of sensory experience, and you you do raise in the book that our five our classification of five senses is is somewhat arbitrary. But let's take that classification just for the purposes of this ne- this next question as a given. If we look at those five, do you have a favorite sense of those five? <laughs> well, as, as someone who sort of did a lot of work in graduate school in art history and media studies, and then and then did a lot of work in visual culture, my uh, I come from this visual background, but um, my I've really been trying to unlearn all that uh, lately, and uh, just trying to, you know pay attention to the other senses a lot more and, and downplay the, the, the vision. Um, so I think there's so much, there's such a rich, uh, rich world out there if we uh, get, get away from vision as this primary kind of sense. Um, so I, I've been really intrigued with, with smell uh, lately and how, how smell operates in our body. And uh, there's these, you know, fascinating, I mentioned in the book briefly, these um, companies, these uh, advertising companies that are, you know, looking at smells and, and they create specific scents for specific companies, you know, and you see it at uh, Abercrombie and Fitch and, uh, you know, many others besides Victoria's Secret and, you know, so even so even electronics companies are getting into the game and they're trying to create certain, you know, because electronics don't necessarily smell good. You walk into Best Buy and you're smelling a, you know, a Sony um, DVD player or something like that and there's not a good smell. So Sony's actually been trying to think about how to associate a scent with their products and uh, many other companies besides. And I think it, it, it's such a, uh, I think it's fascinating because it's such a subtle um, kind of thing. You know, we've, we've so overrun the visual and even the audio, you know, I think in our, in our culture with our, our televisions and, and internets and, um, you know, everything sort of screaming at us and flashing bright lights. I think we've sort of reached, we've really reached a limit of what we can do visually. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean to stop doing that, but, um, you know, it's just sort of no longer as, as fascinating uh, anymore. But I, I think what we're going to find is that, that smell uh, in particular is going to become a new sort of mode, kind of rediscovering a sense of smell. And uh, I'm real fascinated with that, you know, and it's connections just uh, biologically with uh, certain ancient uh, dimensions of our brain and uh, the, uh, the ways that smells go sort of directly into the limbic system and kind of trigger, up, trigger memories from long past. Of course, the famous uh, Marcel Proust's um, uh, smell of the, the Madeleine cookie and uh, things like that that um, we point to. And you know, many of us have had those experiences. I smelled that and it reminded me of this certain place. So I think as long as, I, I mean, Madison Avenue, the, the advertising is going to certainly take over and uh, rearrange our sense of smell here, in, I think, in the next 10 years. Um, but I think it's also, you know, uh, a chance for religious traditions to kind of maybe rediscover smell, you know, and how, how do we use smell in the, 
in the chapels and the uh, mosques and the cathedrals. You know, this has been done for many years, and of course there's the standard approach of, of sort of swinging a particular blend of incense for it. Um, but we might get creative uh, with smell. We might start getting creative with different worship services and different uses of smell. Um, and as I've as I've presented on the book at a few places, I've had uh, various uh, Presbyterian and other Protestant pastors in the audience, and they, they sort of think, oh, I, we've got to figure out how to use these objects in our, in our worship services, you know, and kind of remind them of the uh, Protestant Reformation, you know, well, here's, here's why you didn't use these objects, and, um, and, and now they're sort of finding, gosh, I think we missed something when we got rid of all these uh, rituals and uh, all, these, uh, all these sensual things, you know, we said they were bad, and now, now it seems like the Protestants are sort of wanting to rediscover all that, and, realizing they, there was something got missed along the way. So I think, I think uh, I'm kind of a big fan of smell. I think smell might uh, produce some really interesting results in the, next, in the, in the years to come, both um, sort of as a culture as a whole, but I think there's also a lot of potential in, in religious traditions as well to pursue smell. Well, S. Brent Plate, thank you very much for being with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, David. Enjoyed it as well. Our guest today has been S. Brent Plate, who teaches religious studies at Hamilton College in upstate New York. Professor Plate's teachings and writings explore the relations between sensual life and spiritual life. He's authored and edited 11 books and writes regularly for the Huffington Post, Religion Dispatches, and for other sites. He's co-founder and managing editor of Material Religion, the Journal of Objects, Art, and Belief, co-founder and current president of Script, which is short for the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts, and he's a board member of the Interfaith Coalition of Greater Utica, New York. His most recent book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part two of our interview with S. Brent Plate. You can listen to part one of the interview at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you'd like to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived at our website, so if you're just now starting to listen to religion moments you've not missed out on a thing, you can go back and explore all of them just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, journalist Natasha Alford looks into the archives of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club and finds a letter that illuminates a recent trip she took to Memphis and into the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Last year, my family and I moved to Chicago from Memphis, Tennessee. It's a town steeped in rich history, the blues, barbecue, steamboating, but it also has a bitter history. Memphis was one of the powder kegs of the civil rights era, remembered from that time most notably as the town in which the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. lost his life. 
King had a long and rich association with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, the organization which helps to produce this show. So I was especially pleased when, after a recent trip to Memphis, our producer, Natasha Alford, went into our archives and found a letter which illuminates some of that history and its meaning for our present day. This past week, I took my first visit to the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. More specifically, the Lorraine Motel, assassination site of renowned civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Seeing this site was emotional, surreal, almost dreamlike, like visiting the White House or seeing a New York City skyline without the Twin Towers for the first time. As a millennial, the two-story, dank, whitewashed motel was something I'd always viewed in pictures and history books. It was a world and a time far away. The least I could do was Instagram a picture of me standing in front of it. I received the most likes than any other picture I posted in months. Dr. King's fight for racial justice may seem like a world and a time far away, especially to a younger generation that views legal discrimination based on skin color as mostly a thing of the past. Yet Dr. King's struggle was much greater than the color line. It was a struggle for justice, for all. A struggle to live out the tenets of Christianity, not in excessive religiosity, but in caring for the poor and the least among us. Dr. King actually appeared on the Chicago Sunday Evening Club several times in the mid-1960s. His addresses were so moving that they inspired a letter, one from Mr. Edmund G. Jeffries, resident of North Riverside, Illinois, who wrote to Dr. King on January 27, 1963. Dear Reverend King, I heard your words at the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. What you said meant to me that you are a Christian in the true sense— this country could use more such. I dislike using a word to define or set apart one race, believing that all mankind is one in God, but feel I should to make my feelings clear. I am white of mostly English ancestry. I was born and grew up in Alabama. I have not always been without prejudice and for years was the victim of the unbelievable, for me now, fallacy that the color of my skin made me superior to some of my fellow men. How a person can convince himself of this could be a mystery, but like all mysteries, it is clothed in ignorance. The injustices that the white man have visited on the colored man for hundreds of years burns my soul. I know these injustices are still very much in evidence today. I also know that every day that passes, some innocent child is hurt. This bothers me more than any other facet of the problem. What I could do and no matter what small way it could prove to be, to remove the stigma of prejudice, I do not know. All I want is to do God's will for me, and surely in doing this he will show me some way I can be of help. I will close. I wrote this to clear my own mind, feeling that I should. You must be a happy man, or probably it would be more correct to say, a man enjoying the peace that only a man following the teachings of Jesus and truth can have. I, in times past, have belonged to the Methodist Church, but now consider myself as belonging to no organized church. I only want to be a Christian. In this, I believe we are one. Sincerely yours, Ed Jeffries. Mr. Jeffries' words map out a powerful example of what a good dialogue about race, faith, and humanity looks like. 
Here we have a man who acknowledges he was once prejudiced, a natural byproduct of his environment. But past prejudice doesn't stop him from being honest and reflective. Despite growing up clothed in ignorance, he resolves to learn more as an act of resistance. Listening to Dr. King's Chicago Sunday Evening Club appearance may just have been a first step. Jeffries also acknowledges that injustice is present in his day. This is something we could certainly learn from. In my visit to rural Memphis, I continually met well-meaning people who asserted that we've moved on and we shouldn't discuss color lest we stir up resentment. But wishing away racial injustice or injustice of any kind by not talking about it does not make it go away. The discomfort we feel when we speak of these issues could bring us closer, not divide us, if only we would remember that we are, and in fact have always been, brothers and sisters. Jeffrey's statement that every day that passes some innocent child is hurt also rings true today. The violent reaction to the recent death of Michael Brown in neighboring Missouri speaks to the nation's unrest about racism and police profiling. Brown was 18 years old and planning to start his first day of college a week after his murder. He was unarmed, but shot multiple times by a police officer. It appears that even in 1963, Jeffrey saw children who didn't share the same skin color as his own children. I wonder if in 2014, especially in a place like Chicago, we can all say that we do the same. Although Jeffries was once a Methodist, he closes his letter to King by stating, I only want to be a Christian. In this, I believe we are one. This statement jumps off the page as by far the most powerful statement of all. Here, Jeffries shows that faith, not necessarily denomination, can supersede everything. Race, income, geography. One. In Christ, we are still one. Dr. King eventually wrote back to Edmund Jeffries. He said he was encouraged by his letter and that, quote, Although the days are now dark, I am convinced we stand on the threshold of our nation's brightest tomorrow. He was assassinated five years later, on April 4, 1968. When I finished my tour of the National Civil Rights Museum, I was struck by how brave and selfless the participants in the civil rights movement were. Didn't they fear for their lives? How could they be hit in the face and not strike back? How could they put their careers and educations on hold to fight for ideals? Here I was, Instagramming a photo at a museum, while people my age led movements. But those freedom fighters were driven and sustained by something much greater than themselves. And like Jeffrey's letter to Dr. King shows, words and ideals have incredible power. Perhaps being armed with faith and a knowledge of history does count for something. The first step to taking action may just be conviction. Natasha Alford is a journalist and educator. She lives in Chicago. You can find out more about her trip to Memphis at the website the1964project.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios, looking out over beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop 
and at the Medill School for Journalism at Northwestern University. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron, Mary Morrison, and Katie Scroggin did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, and Alexander Badenoch. Our intern is Mary Morrison. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. (laughs) 